This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or to find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Thank you for being here this morning. So this is uh, case 84 from the Blue Cliff record, Vilma Lakurti's Gate of Non-Duality. There's a pointer to this koan. So, though you say it is, there is nothing which is can confirm. Though you say it is not, there is nothing that is not can negate. When is and is not are left behind and gain and loss are forgotten, then you are clean and naked, free and at ease. But tell me, what is in front of you and what is behind you? If there is a patrobe monastic who comes forward and says, in the front is the Buddha shrine and the main gate, behind is the abbot's room and private quarters, tell me, does this person have eyes or not? If you can judge such a person, I'll allow that you have personally seen the ancients. The main case. Vimala Kirti asked Manjusri, what is a bodhisattva's entry into the Dharma gate of non-duality? Manjusri said, according to what I think, in all things, no words, no speech, no demonstration, and no recognition. To leave behind all questions and answers, this is entering the Dharma gate of non-duality. Then Manjusri asked Vimala Kirti, we have already spoken. Now you should tell us, what is the Bodhisattva's entry into the Dharma gate of non-duality? Now in this particular koan, it ends there. There's another version of the koan in a subsequent book of koans that adds the sentence, Vimala Kirti was silent. Everybody knows he was silent. It's a given. So just by way of explanation. Secho, who many years later commented on this koan, said, what did Vimala Kirti say? Secho also said, completely exposed. And then he added a verse, Secho. Bah, to old Vimala Kirti. At a compassion for living beings, he suffers empty affliction, lying ill in, in Vasali. His whole body withered and emaciated. Manjusri, the teacher of the seven Buddhas, comes to the single room that has been swept repeatedly. He asks about the gate of non-duality. Then Vimala Kirti leaps and falls. He doesn't leap and fall. The the golden-haired lion has no place to look. So what the hell is this con about? (laughs) Duality is the doorway to delusion. Is it this or is it that? If it's not good must be bad. If it's not bad, if it is bad, it's not good. Or we can kind of paint a gray zone of, yeah, it's a bit bad and a bit good, and, you know, we can muddle that up. And when we replace ourselves in, well, it is good and bad, and I'm seeing that good and bad both sides, still we're missing the fundamental reality. 
in its amazingly divisive manner, dualistic thought is invisible to us. We just don't see it. It's kind of our baseline of how we think and how we are. Seemingly invisible, completely pervasive, and no sense that it even exists. It's, it's like, you know, the question, who am I? Well, let me show you my driver's license. That's my picture. That's who I am. It's just like that. Even when we address the subject of the dualistic lens that we automatically think and live out of, we do it through a dualistic lens. And clearly, we need to be able to see things as individual things. And yet, that seeing has a limitation. A sense of distance, of disreality, which invites us to take a view and to take that view as the truth, as the whole, and to live out of that, and act out of that, and think out of that. Let me just for a moment consider when we make a judgment, and I'm not loading the word judgment here, we make an assessment of judgment of anything, then that's our idea of the thing. That's our picture of the thing. Um, I don't like graham crackers. Um, but there's a particular kind of graham cracker that I like. That's better. But they stop making that graham and off our world goes. And I'm, I'm making a point, you know, an idiotic point of graham crackers to, just to show how pervasive and how all-encompassing a dualistic perspective is. So we tend to thoughtfully, thoughtfully, divide up whatever we encounter to a locked-in perspective of how we understand this or that. And that, thank you very much, is how it is. If you have any doubt about it, just ask me. And why is this a problem? What, you know, what's the problem? I mean, the other graham crackers suck. These are good, but they stopped making them. In the introduction to the koan, it says, though you say it is, there is nothing which is can confirm. Though you say it is not, there is nothing that is not can negate. And there is the problem. We take our thoughts, which are always a relative representational view of reality, for a fixed reality. We take it for that's the way it is. My taste in graham crackers is extraordinarily relative. It's not like God hammered it out in the Ten Commandments and that was Ben Moses brought it down, and that is the way it is for me, for you, and for you. It's not like that. But from our self-relative perspective, it is like that, isn't it? I mean, that's our experience. That's how we live. That's how it is. And yeah, you can have your view of graham crackers, but you know, it is, after all, your view. When we look closely, what is there? Is there this, whatever this may be? Is there that, whatever that may be? Our mind is what creates all that we experience. All that we experience is with our thoughts and labels it through judgment or perhaps through distance. And now we can call it objective. There's an objective reality out there. You know, that's objective. 
that's independent of me, and there it is. And we do this all the time. That's what's going on in our mind. That's it. That's the whole of it, pretty much. And yet there's nothing much to it. It's just thoughts about stuff that we like or dislike or discount as relevant. That's all that's going on. We like it, we dislike it, or we discount it. Often what we discount are people. Sometimes those people include ourselves because that's how we've been habituated to think about ourselves. Sometimes others. But when you look for the source of this information, this bottomless sense of judgment, information that we take for reality, the source of your thought, what do you find? I mean, that's a serious question. Where, where do your thoughts come from? Because your thoughts are these judgments, are the reality you're, as you're experiencing it. It's um, interesting. I think I mentioned this yesterday in the workshop on the precepts. Um, that physicists are at a point where the idea of things as solid entities is going away. The closer they look deeply into things, particles, you know, they parse it, they parse it, they parse it, they parse it. They can't find any solid entity. They can't find a fixed thing that exists as itself. Turns out there are no things. When did they get the news? At least they can't find a solid, continually existing reality of a thing that is present independence, independent of our, and here I mean the scientist's personal reference system. This implications what I just said about consciousness and what reality is and what this universe is. There's a small but growing to the great frustration of the majority of physicists who are, after all, scientific materialists of the finest sort. It's a great frustration because they can't explain what the hell's going on at the most basic physical level without it being self-referential, without consciousness being part of it. You take away consciousness and reality goes away. And they can't explain that, but they're confident they will. And this is our mind. We can't explain it. You know, when we look for our mind, there's no such thing as mind. When you look deeply and profoundly and consistently for your mind, what you will find is clarity. Endless, open clarity. That's what you will find. But don't believe me. Please don't believe me. See it for yourself. We create and inhabit the divisions with our mind. Good and bad, life and death, love and hate, like and dislike, you and I, and in many more subtle, hard-to-define ways. It's just automatic. Because it's automatic, it's, it's kind of it's programmed. It's artificial intelligence. Here it is. You want to know where artificial intelligence is? It's in our mind. So the basic, you know, we... We place ourselves at the center of the universe, and we do it automatically. And of course we do that, because that's our perspective. But it's the cause of so much anguish and suffering. 
if that's the only view we have, you know, just think about it. When our only view is of ourself and our self-concern, how does life go? We may get what we want. We may not get what we want. But it's a miserable life. It's a self-concentrated life. And I'm not saying to disregard ourself. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying to see what's there. And the basic duality is me here and you there. And both perspectives, me here and you there, are mind creations. And we, the, the, the key is, don't believe me. Sit for yourself and see it. Sit deeply, sit consistently, sit persistently. Question, question, question. Beyond our immediate feeling, beyond our immediate suffering, beyond our immediate fear. So when is and is not are left behind and gain and loss are forgotten, then you are clean and naked, free and at ease. When me here and you there is left behind, you are free and at ease. There is a me. There is a you. But what is it? What is other? In the intro, it also says, if there is a patrobe monastic comes forward and says, in the front is the Buddha shrine and the main gate. Behind is the abbot's room and private quarters. Tell me, does this person have eyes or not? If you can judge such a person, I'll allow that you have personally seen the ancients. If you're seeing through the ancients' eyes, then you're seeing things as they are. Every time we create a duality, we create a separate sense of ourself. We, every time we create a duality, we can create a separated sense of ourself. An invitation for distance. An invitation to, for dis-ease and anxiety. And we can create that duality between ourself and others, but also between ourself and our anxiety. So we package our anxiety or our fear in a nice little package, put a label on it, stamp that label on it, hold it up and look at it. And now it's a thing, right? We got it. We know what it is. We know all about it. It seems to be in one subtle form or another, almost always present in some way. We're experts in it, except for one thing. We're not looking at it. Looking any place but at it, because it hurts to look at it. it. Hurts. I mean, have you ever engaged, truly engaged your fear and stayed with it? I mean, really stayed with it? What happens when you do that? I don't want to lead you too much, but I invite you to see what happens when you stay present in the complete midst of your fear. When you stay present in the complete midst of your anxiety. When you look closely at your numbness and distance. That's no small thing to do these things. Not at all. In fact, it's such not a small thing that I I think it's easy not to have any idea of what I'm talking about because we're ensconced in this stuff, in this dualistic perspective of self and my fear. So every time we create a duality, we make a separation, and there we are. There's me and it. Our practice is to study the self. That's what Zazen is. We're actually studying who I am, who this being that sits here is. 
And we're doing that. When, we, when I say study that, we're studying what? Our mind. And we're doing that. So the term is to forget that, to forget ourselves. And, uh, you know, another articulation is to say to see through that. Because we're never going to forget ourselves on a permanent, ongoing, endless basis. We, we will have glimpses, perhaps, if we persist to see the self as a cloud. There's the cloud, but I can see the moon or the sun right through it. But it's very difficult to forget the self, if not impossible, if you're constantly recreating it with your thoughts. And the thoughts are always, as the Buddha pointed out, as has been said many times, in some subtle form of judgment. A judgment towards, a way, or I don't want to consider it. Sitting in Zazen, after a while, if we're patient and careful and fairly meticulous in our practice, meaning that we're not, when we're not meticulous, we're meticulous about that, noting that. So all possibilities of Zazen are included in this we can begin to directly experience the connection between our emotional state and our thoughts about our emotional state. We can see that. We can see and recognize anxiety or fear or a particular set of circumstances. And if we persist with it, often we'll find out that the same stories and Uh, recollections that come up all have a similar quality to them. In fact, often the same, you know, select any card, 1 through 20, it's always going to be one of those cards. You know, that's what our thought process is going to be about. Often, I'm not good enough, or I'm great, or some variation in between those two. Or I'm afraid, or I'm anxious, or no, or some self-affirming in a positive or negative way, sense of thoughts. But when we sit in zazen, this becomes observable to us. You know, I think one, one way to conclude what happens after sitting years of zazen is still crazy all the, after all these years. But I know that I'm crazy. You know, I see it. There it is. There's the passing parade. And that is free and clear. That's the nakedness, you know. It's, it's all good. <laughs> so within Zazen, we can gradually cultivate the depth of stillness. And we begin with the seemingly endless thought, emotional stream. That's what we're cultivating, to see into that. We begin wherever we are. So those, that stream, endless seeming thought, we study. We look at that. And if this is your first time sitting you know, that may seem an impossibility because there's no other reference system other than that stream of thoughts. But if you persist in sitting, it changes. And of course, it does change. But as soon as we reflect on that change, we're doing it with more thought. And so we say, oh, it's not changing. I'm still thinking about this. Um, so that's a game you'll never win. <laughs> yeah. Your mind's never, on a long-term basis, going to stop producing thoughts until you're dead. That's, there's a finality to that. But you will see through it. Gradually and perceptively, you will see through it. In our breath, in our moment of this breath, 
where there is just this breath. Just mu. Just this moment of being, of awareness. The non-dual dharma is vivid. It's aware. It's conscious. It's living within our inherent wisdom. And as soon as you say, that's the non-dual dharma, guess what? Two things. And yet that habit is so strong. We can gradually clear some space in ourselves. We can gradually see what we could not see clearly before. And gradually become aware of how much we treasure each separate perspective. We have captured each thought, emotion, filling a need to justify its own existence as a separate demand. We, we begin to see this process where we actually call on and demand upon ourselves to think in a particular way and feel a particular way because that is fulfilling a need in us. There's a gain. Whenever you find yourself in terminal anxiety or fear that is habitual and ongoing or very subtle, a good question to ask is, what's my gain? What do I gain from this? Because you're, you're, you're doing it, and you're gaining something from it. Whenever you're working with the koan mu, or just pure awareness, and you're distant, or your breath, and you're distant from it, it's not bad to ask, what am I protecting here? What am I gaining from my distance? doesn't mean the, the distance, the, the, the space is within your control. But something gets revealed sometimes by asking these questions. You're getting something from our delusions. We are getting something. I'm not excluded from that. So Vimala Kirti asked Manjusri, what is a bodhisattva's entry into the Dharma gate of non-duality? And Manjusri says, according to what I think, in all things, no words, no speech, no demonstration, no recognition. To leave behind all questions and answers, this is entering the Dharma gate of non-duality. In the Cliff Notes version, do we still know Cliff Notes? Do we still have that? Yes, there must be some version of that on the web. Um, the Vimala Kirti Sutra is a, is a key sutra. It's, it's a base sutra of Zen and Mahayana Buddhism. Uh, and Vimala Kirti is the central figure in that sutra. And he is presented as the idealized Mahayana Buddhist lay practitioner, which is wonderful. And it's why this robe is white, by the way, because by tradition he wore a white robe. So the senior practitioners within the, the lay practitioners with the MRO, within the MRO are asked to wear white robes in honor of that. And allegedly, he, his insight was the same as the Buddha's, and he was a contemporary of the Buddha. And he, he was a, a businessman. He was a wealthy patron. Manjusri, the other figure here, is the bodhisattva of wisdom, of prajna, transcendental wisdom. And traditionally, in many zendos, uh, is the, the figure on the altar, not the Buddha. And so you, the, the Buddha is the figure in the Buddha hall where ceremonies and liturgy is done in traditional 
Japanese and probably Chinese. I'm just thinking in the Chinese zendos I've been in. I'm, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but certainly in Japanese zendos it is. Um, not always anymore. And as you know, we, we have, that's the Buddha. Um, so, but traditionally depicted Manjushri as a sword in her hand. And she's astride a lion. There are many other iconic uh, presentations. I'm describing the one I relate to the most. So there's a sword which cuts through the, the delusions. So it's, it's wisdom. And um, she's the oldest and most significant bodhisattva in Mahayana literature. She's, you know, we hardly, it's interesting to me, and I've commented a little bit about this, that we hardly talk about her nowadays, which I, I don't think is a positive in Sanskrit, the Vimla Kirti means undefiled repute or pure name um, and represents non-dual wisdom. She's the expert on non-duality. Got questions about non-duality? That's where you go. So, to see and to study duality directly is what's at the heart of Zazen. That's what we're doing. We're seeing how we create multiplicity. We practice to incorporate this perspective in our life, in our day-to-day lives, and also acknowledge that that practice has to be renewed continually. You know, we talk about insight as if it's something that happens and we got it. It's not like that. That every moment is an opportunity to enter into non-duality. And certainly we know that every moment is an opportunity to enter into delusion and separation and fear. In one contemporary commentary on the sutra, it says, in the sutra, the Buddha persuades all of the great bodhisattvas to see Vilmalakirti, who is pretending to be ill. So, 22,000 bodhisattvas visit Vimalakirti. And they're all in this one room, by the way which is always swept clean and kept immaculate. And ask him to speak. They visit Vilamalakirti and ask him to speak about the Dharma gate of non-duality. The bodhisattvas all took dualistic views of doing and non-doing, of the two truths, real and conventional truth, real and conventional truth, and merged them into a single view which they considered to be the Dharma gate of non-duality. So this is a contemporary description from someone else of the sutra. That monistic view is the view that all of reality is basically one. It's more accurate to say, however, the commentator says, to say not one, not two. I would say that even saying not one, not two, misses it by a million miles. That's the whole point of the koan, is to see that for yourself. Manjusri said, according to what I think in all things, no words, no speech, no demonstration, no recognition, to leave behind all questions and answers, that is entering the Dharma gate of non-duality. Then Manjushri asked Vilma Lakirti, we have already spoken, all 32,000, 
bodhisattvas. Now, you should tell us, what is a bodhisattva's entry into the Dharma gate of non-duality? And Setro says, what did Vilma Lakirti say? This is what makes it a koan. In the Dyson room, you actually have to present, what did he say? He also said, the commentator, completely exposed. So there's a verse to this koan. Ba to old Vimalakirti. Out of compassion for living beings, he suffers empty affliction. He's actually not truly ill. What he says is, I am ill because all beings are suffering. The world is ill. Lying ill, lying ill in Varasali, his whole body withered and emaciated. Manjusri, the teacher of the seven Buddhas, you know, when we chant the, the, the Buddhist lineage, there's seven Buddhas, Shakyamuni being, I think, the last. So he's their teacher. Comes to a single room that has been swept repeatedly. He asks about the gate of non-duality. Then Vimalakirti leans and falls. One side. He doesn't lean and fall. The other side. The golden-haired lion has no place to look. The golden-haired lion is Manjusri. Astride the lion. So does Vimalakirti respond? What did Vimalakirti say? He also said completely exposed. If so, how was Vilmulakirti completely exposed? How? How? Anyone can remain silent. You know, if, if you're working on this koan, and this is not just a casual question, this is pointing. You, the only way you can answer koans is with actual insight, actual realization. It's the only way they make sense. They don't make sense from a dualistic perspective, from self and other, from a non, from, from you and me. They make no sense whatsoever. They're just a stupid puzzle. But they make complete sense from a realized point of view, from a reality point of view. It's clear as a bell. And so, you know, someone seeing into this koan coming in and remaining silent is not seeing the koan. That's what Vilma Kirti did. What are you going to do to to answer this koan? The non-dual dharma. The traditional way of speaking of Vilma Lakirti's response is thundering silence. And there is that. So he leans and falls. He doesn't lean and fall. The golden-haired lion that Manjusri is astride of can't find him, has no place to look. So did he answer or not? If you say he did or did not, then obviously you fall into the same duality that all of the bodhisattvas and Manjusri fell into. If you say he answered by remaining silent, then you're missing a slightly more subtle form of duality. So what do you say? How can we be free, naked and true, real? How can we respond in our life? Respond in the moment by moment by moment that is our life in a way that is real, that is whole, that holds yourself, that holds the other. Knowing, seeing through the cloud of self and other, and yet responding, acting 
in a way that holds the whole thing. The whole thing. Me, you, all beings. But forget all beings. Let's just start with me and you. That would be a good starting place. So what is this koan pointing at? How does it speak to you? Our tendency is to understand it informationally, cognitively, to get it, to place it within our reference system. That is probably not going to help you very much. I read a commentary, uh, a contemporary commentary. The person understood the koan, but he didn't see the koan, at least within the context of writing that. There's a seemingly infinite number of websites and books and podcasts on Zen, on spiritual practice, on living a a more effective and happier life. Um, I know the teachers at the MRO have been approached by podcasters to be interviewed, and individually we all came to the same conclusion. It's not how we want to spend our time teaching. We want to spend it here, and this equivalent rather than broadcasting for a podcast to people who have not made that commitment that you have made to be here and to practice here, to sit here. It's interesting to note that this comes up very often, and it just came up recently. If someone comes into residency here at the temple, uh, and it's their first experience in Zen uh, beyond books or some informational equivalent. And so in the interview, because each person is interviewed, they, they say, well, I've read the books and now I want to experience it. And they come in and you talk to them a week or two or a month later and they, their eyes are like this. And they're going, wow, this has nothing to do with the books. Same thing at the monastery, obviously. And this is the temple where the, the training is in quote parenthesis. Um, you know, we're practicing here as best we can as lay people. There's no way we're going to dive into this practice and realize ourselves with an informational perspective. With, I got it. I understand it. That is not happening. I mean, it happens, happens all the time, but it's not transformative. You're not going to see into the essential matter. And we're not asking, this practice does not ask us to abandon our intelligence and common sense and our thinking mind. But it does ask us to begin to consider who we are and how we can live and to consider within that the possibility that we imprison ourselves with our very limited view and our beliefs about who we are. The basic question we're asking is, what is this? What's going on here? What is this? You, me, the tree outside, the cars going by. What actually is this? And how do we begin to do that? We start with awareness. We start with paying attention to the reality that is before us. And we begin to learn with the entire body and mind, not just some aspect of our intellect. And in the practice especially the practice of Zazen, but not just. We're exploring what is this body and mind. We're actually looking, questioning, asking, what is this? 
It's not what we think it is. No matter what we think it is, it's not that. And it's not what we describe. Manjusri described it perfectly. He gave a perfect answer. There's no way to criticize that answer from the perspective of descriptive response. It's easy to listen to a talk on the non-dual dharma and to come away with a whole new set of dualities and distinctions. (laughs) And now it's about the non-dual dharma. Just ask Manjusri. But he knew. I mean, we don't actually know what he knew or she knew. I usually think of, she's traditionally depicted as him, but I relate to her as her. But this practice is not about what we think of and what we describe in our experience or how we parse out our thoughts about reality. It has to be your experience, yours, really, really yours, your realization. And it has to function in this fucked up dualistic world that we live in. And pardon my French, but I think that's an accurate description of how I experience the world. I don't know how you experience the world, but it's pretty strange. And it's full of suffering. And so this practice asks you, what will you do? What will you do as your life? What will you do within this practice and then extending that to your life? Every dharma, dharma in this case means phenomena that we encounter, that is, every situation we enter is an opportunity to practice the non-dual dharma. This means to not separate yourself, to not in microscopic or macroscopic ways flee. It means to function to the benefit of all beings, even an an adversary. And this is a very personal matter. It concerns you. It concerns me. There's nothing, nothing outside of this. It's your life. And everything we do in our life is a, is a way to do that, appropriate to the time of the place, the relative circumstances and position between people, and the amount. Those are kind of the guidelines of how to apply the precepts. In other words, appropriate to that specific circumstance. And who determines that? That's our job, meaning your job and my job. So there is no cookbook. There is no right way to do this. In this relative world, it is a relative world. Thus, there is no right way to do this. But there's another perspective of that relative world, which doesn't rest in relativity. And having seen into that, that's what we're doing in Zazen. One can come forth into this relative world and do it with a, a commitment and intent of living as compassionate a life as you can, of, of within the difference of self and other, holding to the wholeness of that. It's not just one, not two. It's the wholeness of it in which nothing is excluded, and that is your fundamental experience of who you are. So this is not going to come to you. You have to practice it. You have to work at it. And, and that work is to face your own self, which is another way of saying face your own suffering, face your own pain, because that's what comes out of a dualistic life, is that. So we all get a ticket to that, don't we? So I really hesitated before I <laughs> gave this talk, 
because it demands a lot of us. It demands to, to both not understand and to understand. And I hope it inspires you, or at least puzzles you enough to take another step within your practice and within your life. Thank you for listening. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.